as a longtime futures trader, I've learned that you guys have probably heard me say this. Everything works sometimes and nothing works all the time. Market environments change and we have to adapt or else we'll be out of business. I mean, that's just reality. We all talk about this a lot on social media. Today, my guest is Matt Caruso. He's a record-breaking investor, successful professional trader who returned 346% in US investing championship. I'm really gonna ask him how he did that. And then we will be discussing what we're seeing in the current market environment, how Matt and I are adapting and how we're trading it. Because at the end of the day, right, it all comes down to how we're executing. We want to hear from you throughout the discussion. So be sure to drop your questions or comments in the YouTube chat. And before I get Matt in here, I want to remind all of you guys about Micro Ether Futures. They are live at CME. I was actually looking at the Micro Ether Futures before I got on today because I'm long some ETH. They are one-tenth the size of one ETH. To learn more, go to cmegroup.com. This Futures Radio Show podcast is sponsored by CME Group, Trading Technologies, Trade Station, and FTSE. Russell, the Russell 2000 is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol RTY and micro E-mini Russell future symbol 2M2K. To learn more about FTSE Russell and their products, please visit footsierussell.com. Matt, do we have you everywhere? <laughs> I think so. Thanks for having me, Anthony. We're doing something nobody's done. We're streaming on YouTube <laughs> and on Twitter spaces, man. I just try to keep up. Too many, so many different places to stream to. I don't know where we're going anymore. I know. I wish Twitter would make this a little bit easier. They don't let us stream through to the both, uh, to both of them. But um, you know, hey, we're dealing with it. We've got it going. Like I said, everybody, bear with us. I'm excited to have you here today. And the first thing I have to ask you is 346%. What were you trading? <laughs> well, you know, it was uh, just COVID, the, the bottom was happening and the Fed came out and they lowered rates to zero and everything. And I, I looked at my wife, I said, that's it, the bear market's over. She's like, what, what are you crazy? I mean, everything, we don't even know what this thing is. I'm like, trust me, the bear market's over. The Fed is throwing the kitchen sink at this market. I mean, even if it's the end of the world with that kind of help from the Fed, we'll at least get a bounce. And I really came to the conclusion. I said, this is kind of, this is a war. It's a war, a health war. So let me go back and study some past war periods. I like the World War I period, all the steel stocks that Jesse Livermore was trading, Bethlehem Steel. And I said, I have to find the equivalent of the steel stocks. So I found stocks like Livongo and, and Fastly that were going to benefit from the stay at home or all of the health trends. And they just took off like hundreds of percent. I was well positioned. I, I stayed in for several months for the majority of the move. And, and that there you go. It's crazy because I remember talking to a lot of the macro people at the time saying, uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth specifically, she was saying how the Fed did more in like a three-month span than they did during the entire QE time. And I had not known that mm -hmm. and I, I, because I don't follow that close enough to, to know those types of details. And when I had heard that, I was thinking to myself, this could really only end one way, right? If, we, <laughs> if, if history has taught us anything is that when the Fed is doing that type of intervention, this thing could be ready to roll. I mean, I got stubborn with it for a while, <laughs> you know, selling that you don't know when it's going to end. What were some of the things that you looked at at the time? I mean, I know that you said this, that the bottom was in, but that bottom going up, man, that was not easy to trade. I felt it was like, I still, you know, Trump coming on every day at 6 PM. I'm like, here we go. getting ready, you know, hit the sell <laughs> button again. What was it? Technicals? What, what were the things that kept you in the trade? So I'm kind of um, unlike maybe a lot of other traders. So I, I like global macro, even though I like individual growth stocks, I like the global macro approach. I like looking at Federal Reserve, economic policy. I, I really like building the whole the whole view. 
but I build my viewpoint and then after I won't act on it as, as much as sometimes as I'm you know screaming bullish or screaming bearish, I won't act on it until the technicals kind of confirm it. So I think it was April 6th, we had a fall through day, which um, for growth investors by William O'Neill, it's one of his techniques to help find a bottom in the market. It's, it's, it's a technical based tool on the, uh, the indices. And when I had that click in with everything I knew about the Fed and the way I was seeing in some individual growth stocks acting, I said, this is my five-star trade. I got to be in there and be there with proper size. Because I mean, I think everyone at some point has had a great trade, but if it's a 5% of your portfolio exposure, it's not going to move the needle. So, you know, you got to get in there with size, but carefully. And, you know, I think that's why it's so important to be in the real leading stories. Because like you said, you know, Trump's coming on or whoever, and, and that gives market jitters. But if you're in the stronger names, they don't back off as hard. They go up, they go faster and they don't come off as hard. So it gives you that cushion to be able to sit through that day-to-day -day volatility, even though, you know, in hindsight, it looks like, hey, it's went straight up, but that day-to-day -day is still difficult when you have a concentrated position. So here we are right now coming off of a pullback. Yeah. And I talked a little bit about this. I actually am I'm along a little bit of NASDAQ as we speak right now, using the futures, send them in the micros, but I thought that was a pretty decent low. I don't know if it is the low. What are you saying? Yeah, you know, I, I was tweeting that out about a week or so ago when things were really there was that one day where I think the Dow was down over a thousand and you could just you could just feel the capitulation. But yeah, you know, that's I guess my trader instinct. But what really kind of clinched me for a more of a short term low of importance was if you look at the AAII, the American Association of Individual Investors, they had in their survey over 50 percent of respondents being bearish. That's a very I mean, to get more than half the people bearish is a really uh, you don't see that too often. So at least a short term basis now. A lot of people, you know, I, I like the saying, you know, it's not the stock market, it's a market of stocks. Even if the market bounces here, it doesn't mean the NASDAQ goes straight to new highs. But if the market at least stabilizes, the better stories, the better names, those can still have some good advances while the general market stays in maybe a, a weak state. I'm not super bullish on the NASDAQ. Like, I'm not positioning myself for a big move there. I'm kind of trying to play through some different industry trends that I'm seeing right now. So I think just what's really important is you don't want the market in free fall. That, that will kind of like, you know, pour water over over everything. But seeing that really bearish sentiment that usually takes a little bit of time to wear off, even if we chop sideways for a little bit as people turn a little more bullish. But uh, that's why I think, you know, last week, I think it was last week now or, or just the end of the week before is it was was kind of a, an important short term low. It's remained to be seen, but that's my my thoughts at the moment. One of the things for me as more of a technician is I think that lows are so much more easier to identify, especially mm -hmm. when we've been in a primary bull market like we have been for, I mean, really for a long time, right? I mean, you take the COVID out of it and it just feels like we really, for me, even as a two-sided trader, I've almost only been looking at longs for vast majority of the time over the past several years. So pullbacks to me, when they're done, they're so short-lived, first of all, and they're, I just think, so much more easier to recognize now because when they come off, they kind of come off and when they build, it just seems like they're like I said, a little bit easier to recognize, at least on my mm -hmm. tools. For you, what is the first things that you're looking for when we're forming a bottom? Well, you know, it's like they say, the saying is, uh, you know, a top is a process, a bottom is an event. Usually you see that kind of a capitulation, but you, there's also, there's always that typically that stabilizing period, that retest, that higher low. And um, it's kind of always hard to tell in real time. You don't, unless like, you know, the... 2020 bottom was special because the Fed stepped in and there's other periods where you get that as well. If you go back and you study other periods of time where there wasn't a dramatic Fed action, it just was the end of a bear market that just ran out of steam. 
um, you need you really need more technical time where things will usually kind of chop sideways a little bit and the uptrend takes time to go higher. But I think sentiment readings are really important. You really want to see people just give up at the end of the market. And um, I've seen that even in industries. I mean, it's sometimes, I mean, like uh, when I started as a, as a pro trader, I was a lot in the precious metal space. I'm in Canada. There's a lot of, you know, precious metal companies here. And in 2011, it was, you know, 2010, 2011, when gold was at, I think, 1900 the first time, everybody loved gold stocks. It was the best thing in the world. Like fast forward a few years later, and the space was abandoned. It's just, it's amazing when you, when you stay in a game long enough and you, and you follow, you know, recurring uh, stocks or industries, how the sentiment can shift so dramatically. I mean, unless, unless you experience it, you can't believe it. I, I remember when I first started, it was a floor guy telling me, he's like, Matt, I remember at, near the end of bear markets, we'd be playing checkers on the floor. It'd be nothing going on. You know, it'd just be, it'd be a really dead market. And, and those are typically the extremes of these long bear markets. But fortunately, we haven't had many of those in the recent past. And usually they've been quicker and faster events. So, um, although I think this time here, I think we're in a bit more of a precarious situation. Um, I can see a lot of pressure on this market going a little bit longer term. So we'll see how that plays out. But um, I mean, it's, it's it's not always easy. You kind of it's almost like I like to you know look at it like music. You, you don't really know how the song's going to end if you're playing. You want to just read the notes. They come along and adapt. So it's kind of hard to not every bottom really is the same way. One thing that I've noticed this year is the first day of the year is the high of the year. And in my experience, I'd love for somebody actually to pull a stat up of this. I don't know this stat, but from doing this for many years, you know, you kind of remember certain things. I've noticed years where the opening day is the low of the year. We tend to make that range for the first three to four months in that direction. When the range is the high of the year, opening range is the high of the year, the first day, we tend to make that range in that direction for the first two to three months at least. You know, so for me, I feel from a technical basis, also, from what we hear from the Fed, you know, I'm not really a macro guy, so I wouldn't be someone who would be the, the person to to say that that I completely know how that is impacting us. But I've been around long enough to also know that it, I, I have to keep an eye on it. That's what the one thing I look at this year as, I think, a difficult thing for the bulls to start to overcome is that you're in negative territory mm -hmm. from the first day of the year, at least when we look at the major indices. Is that something you look at? Does that help you um, at all determine um, anything? You know, seasonality, it's something I've used in the past. At one point I was studying it really closely and, um, you know, uh, my background is really technical first. I, I was a chartist first and after I, I incorporated more and more fundamental into my work. So I, I mean, I, I did a lot of background study on, on seasonality, even cycles at one point. And I like to keep things simple and, and really seasonality. I, I've just found you can go back and look at trends, you can look at stats and probability, but really, especially with the general market, there's really two times a year that I find there's something of importance. The big bottoms usually happen in October and the Santa Claus rally, things typically go higher. I find that's the only thing that you can almost really hang your hat on. Besides that, you know, sometimes things kind of rhyme, but it's never, I mean, if you're trying to put on concentrated positions and you're trying to really time, I mean, you can get a sense of certain times a year, but really those, those two periods, October and December are the two go-tos for me that I try and really adjust my work around. Besides that, I kind of just go with it. That's, I think maybe out of frustration of, of so many years being the exception in my uh, table of uh, Marches or my table of Aprils that I just finally said, you know what, I'm just going to read price action. And unless it's the really significant time of year, I'm going to move aside from that. Yeah. I'm definitely a level to level person myself when I look at things, but like I said, for me, it's like the, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you ever look at how the ranges are formed for the year? So like right now we look at, you know, where the NASDAQ and the S&P, they opened the year and they went down and they made a low. 
do you look at how big those ranges are to say, okay, well, that's a decent range comparative to how we've been for the first, maybe first quarter or so to help you determine that? Because that's something that I look at in the sense of just not just sentiment and everything else, but just looking at it as a whole and saying, hey, maybe this is just it because we've kind of made a range. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I haven't really approached it that way, but I, I mean, I understand the logic you're, you're getting to. Maybe something I'll, I'll take a look into, but I never really, uh, you know, I try and put myself in the position of, of investors. Like you're saying, if we're down on the year, how are people positioning? How are they going to rotate? How's that going to impact, you know, maybe how they're going to approach stocks. But in terms of the range of itself, I've never really personally dived too much into that. You know why I think about that? Because in my mind, I always think, when they're looking for a low, we keep looking for a low until we find a low. Then when we find a low that everyone likes, we keep looking for highs. And that's something for me that I try to, you know, like I said, I'm long NASDAQ right now. And it's like, I'm really, <laughs> it's one of those things where I keep shrinking my moving average. Now I, I was talking about this this past week. I'm really gauging on a 10 day. We're getting so far away from it to where I'm very hard for me to sit in longs at this point because mm -hmm. I feel like I'm, I like the low. I don't know if I love the low and I want to be really tight with it. That's why I'm asking you that in the sense of when you find the low, because going back to what you did back mm -hmm. in you know 2020 with COVID, it's hard for me, aside from like maybe that specific instance, and I, obviously I figured it out later, you figured it out earlier than I did, to know to hold that trade. Like maybe, maybe not just the ranges or certain things that I'm talking about, but what are you doing to help you it, it, maybe at this point, if you're long anything, maybe talk about maybe if anything that you're long to try and hold it and see how far you think it could go. Yeah, you know, that's something, uh, it's really a combination of technicals and fundamentals. And, and I find that's really important because you can't hold on. Like, I mean, when I was buying, you know, Livongo, it's 27, then it's 40 and it's 46. Before I guess, you know, I, I think I got in the 140s to hold that entire time. It's it's really difficult. I mean, you're sitting at 70 and you can see, oh, that 50 day average is down at $50. You can see that $20 drop. It's very difficult to hold on to. And, and that conviction is what's going to do it for you. That's why I like to incorporate a lot of fundamental work, just in terms of understanding the story, understanding the potential, where can we go with this? Um, in terms of the actual technical basis, as I do a lot of work on the weekly charts. And William O'Neill in his book, How to Make Money with Stocks, he he gives some great guidance on this that's really influenced the majority of my my hold, my work of holding. And he goes back and studies a lot of market winners. And if they break out of proper bases and they have all of the right fundamentals and the story is in place, there's certain minimum times that they're going to run. I mean, it's not 100%, but I mean, you have like high probability. If you go back at all the leading stocks, they're going to go at least four months or more before you run into some kind of major trouble, not, not just a short-term pause. And so I really guide that when I'm putting them on my, my initial positions, if, if they can really blast off and I feel I have a market leader, I'm going to try and give it that, you know, three, four months to work. And then I can reassess if it's, if, if everything that I, I understood about the company is, is, is running true, I can see more potential I have a huge profit cushion. Then I'll, I'll reassess about holding longer term, but it's that price action after the buys are triggered, out of after the breakout. Is the market confirming my thoughts, or or do I have this great bullish idea I came to because I, I love this company, I've been to it, but then the market reaction is a uh, meh, it's a pass. You know, like clearly investors are not piling into it. If you see these fund flows come into these companies, or or even the market in general, I mean, like you you're talking Nasdaq, you see these ninety percent up days and these power moves. That's telling you the market is also recognizing what I'm seeing, and once you're on key. It runs, you know, for an institution to put on a position, that's going to take months. And the institutions are what push these things. 
let's work back a little bit because we're going to go to the charts here, everybody. So if you're listening in the spaces, you can hop over to YouTube and we're going to go to the charts here with Matt in just a little bit. And I want to, let's, let's really stay current to this current market right sure. now. We, we see this low um, that has potentially been made. We call it a low, but it's the low that we have for now. First things you start to look at is it, um, I, I titled the show market environment because the market environment shifts, right? What is right. the first thing that you're looking at to determine this market environment could be shifting? I want to start looking for market leaders. All the things that you talked about, walk us through, um, and then we'll go to the charts to see what that looks like. So I've really learned over my years is that the best time to find a winner is a market correction. So it's, it's frustrating. And a lot of times people kind of walk away and, and they're missing the time to uncover what's going to be the next leaders. And this, again, this drop in the past few weeks has been this exact same thing. The market, the Nasdaq fell 20%. And if you take a look at oil companies, potash companies, they didn't fall. I mean, the reason a stock is not falling is because the institutions are, are using this weakness to buy stock. And if your, your company is falling 50, 60% with a backdrop of a weak market, the guys with the best research with the, you know, the big, the deepest pockets in the room passed on buying your stock when it was only 10 or 15% down. They, they, they're waiting now that it's down 70% to start buying it. So clearly it was overvalued. And um, so that, that's, that's the main feature. So I kind of use the market. I, I, I typically don't trade the market directly. I, I just use it more as a, a barometer of, of how aggressive I should be with my individual stock positions. I know if the market's going to enter a bear market, that's going to pressure everything. But it's really that barometer. So I, I kind of use it as an exposure gauge. So when when I see um, a positive market environment that we can look at, I use net lows, net highs to, to gauge that. If I see a positive environment, I'm going to be in fully invested with leverage if, if my positions are calling for it. If I see a back and forth, one day we have net highs, one day we have net lows, the market's trying to find its footing. I'm going to start raising cash. I'll probably have 20, 30, 40% cash, depending how my positions are acting. And if like recently, we were really looking at net new lows every day, every day there was more stocks making 52 week lows and 52 week highs. It's not that I won't be in the market, but I'm probably going to have at least 70% cash. So if I'm going to play, because I mean, we've all been there, right? If you trade long enough, you, you can kind of convince yourself that, that you found the bottom and you haven't. And if you're playing aggressively, you'll blow yourself up. So those are my general guidelines. If, if the market indicators are telling me, hey, we're in a bad market environment, sure, you have a great idea, take some exposure, but you're not going to get in there too heavy until you get more confirmation. That's kind of my process and, and how I use the market to gauge my exposure. And then I actually move into the individual stocks. I don't think people look at the reaction of stuff nearly as much. I think everybody gets so focused in on what is the signal, right? Mm -hmm. Versus what is the reaction? So what you're saying to me is, is that you wait for the environment to set up for you and then you're getting confirmation through the feedback from the market, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone is, and, and I think we've, I've been there myself, especially, you know, you get a technical analysis book and they show you all the buy signals and, and that's the holy grail, right? I find that great buy signal, but the thing is, is if you study enough charts, different environments, the same buy signals will work fantastic in some environments. I mean, it'll be like the Midas touch. Everything, you know, every time it shows yeah, exactly. up, it's, it's a golden buy. And then after in the wrong environment, it's awful. So the way I came to adapt my approach is, is when I have these, the signals that the environment is healthy, it's just so much easier to take these buy signals because they all start to trigger, they all work. And when I have a negative environment type of signal, then I, I, I definitely, you know, I assume there's going to be a higher failure rate. So I dial back my exposure. What are some of the things that you look for that give you the confirmation that things are working to now start to get, we'll say, more aggressive? Profits. If I'm buying a stock and it's moving so up. So P&L. 
PL, PL. And, and you know, for years as a day trader, you know, market maker, you have that PL like just right in front of you all day. I mean, you, I mean, it's just for me, it's just habit. I'm always constant. I, I look at it as my own personal index. You know, the, the SP is the SP 500. Well, my PL is the Matthew Caruso index. And, and my, is it moving up? Is it in a bull or bear market? And that's, that's how I always gauge my, am I right or not? I mean, the market, the market is the most uh, fair place in the world. I like to say they'll tell you right away if you're right, if you're right or wrong. There's no there's no second guessing. If you're making money, you're right. If you're losing, you're wrong. You know, it's amazing to me how there's such there's really a lot of divide between looking at your P and L versus not. Everyone mm -hmm. says not everyone, but there's a lot of people that say don't look at it. I'd never look at it. Just trade the market. Other people say you know I have to see it. I'm one of those people who I look at it because similar to what you say, if I'm doing good. That's feedback telling me, hey, yeah. man, things are working. Recognize it. If I'm trading over my skis, right, and I'm getting beat up, and I see that my P&L, I'm getting clipped, uh, and anyone could tell me that, oh, Anthony, you know, it's all about managing risk and all that. Sure, but yeah, you don't tell me you never get over your skis because that's crazy. It <laughs> happens. At least for me, it does. And I'm like, okay, man, look, at you're getting hurt early in this trade. you got a lot of room to go. Step back, reduce yeah. your position size. It works both ways. And when I do see things that are working, I'm very similar in that matter. And I think a lot of traders listening to this, it's like, if you can control that in the moment and look at your P&L, it does give you a lot of feedback, um, winning or losing. And I think it's it's something that it's not black and white. You should or should not look at it. It depends on, I think, who you are as a person, if it makes yeah. sense to you. Yeah. And you know, um, at the same time, I think it's just important for risk management too, because I know I've been there. Sometimes you're you're in this position and you're dead wrong. You don't want to accept it. You keep looking online to find some kind of information to <laughs> to to you know agree with you. You keep looking at you, you look up the symbol in Reddit or on Twitter. You know some guys got to also see a bullish, and you're losing money. You're dead wrong. You're concentrated, and you know your risk will finally tell you I have to get out of this thing before it just becomes a disaster. And then it's amazing once you get out and you know you cool off, and it's three hours later the next day. You almost look at yourself. What the? Heck, what was I thinking? I mean, I'm so yeah. I'm so obviously wrong. And then it, then all all the stuff you didn't want to see that you you know psychologically you were kind of blocking out. Like no, it can't be. All becomes clear. And like yeah, I mean this is this is this is the wrong idea that I had. But that's why the PNL is so important to me because if if I'm getting you know really beat up, I have to get out because sometimes it's amazing how that PNL how that just your your account movements and and your frustration will really uh, impact your thought process. And I think as you gain experience, I think the, the biggest hallmark of an experienced professional is not necessarily what are their buy signals or sell signals. It's, it's, it's how well can they assess that they're going off or that they're on, you know, or that they're working well, or if they're really, you know, um, psychologically not, not clicking. It's, it's the psychology that has to be mastered long-term because most of the buy rules I mean, there's not that much new unless you're you're writing some kind of you know HFT where it's it's really rocket science. I mean, most of the stuff most people are doing, taking positions, holding on to trends, this has been known for decades. I mean, you know, even William O'Neill wrote his book, his first one in the '80s. He references stuff from decades prior. Edwards McGee, where it's 1948. Jesse Livermore had his book in 1927, and everyone's saying variations of the same that are refined and slightly better, but it's nothing earth shatteringly new, you know? So it's really, I think the hallmark between the successful investor and the, and the person who just can't get it right is learning to adapt to your emotions, keeping that discipline and, and realizing, uh Oh, Matt, you're, you're going on the wrong path. You're time to refocus. You know, I think that's the difference. I talked about this recently. I was on uh, another spaces with the, with the trader lion 
uh, crew. Love those guys. And yeah, good guys. I think it was Nick that asked me. It was something about how do I deal with the drawdowns, or I forget the exact question and how it's set up. But it was I remember a pitch trader coming to me and saying, "Hey, Anthony, you're doing good. Keep doing good. When you're not doing good, go spend money. It'll save you money in the market." <laughs> and that really triggered something in me because I remember at the time being like, "Is this guy nuts? He wants me to go and spend money when I'm losing." And the whole time I'm thinking about this for, I mean, who knows how long that time span was before I finally started to recognize it was when you're doing good, you stay, you press, you keep doing good. You take yeah. that feedback. You just keep taking from the market. The market does not lay up on you. And when the market's giving, you better be taking. And when the market's yeah. taking, because it's going to happen, give less and go spend money. I remember the first time I did it, I went and spent like 500 bucks on something. Who knows? I probably went and bought who knows what. And I remember being like, this is just ridiculous. And I remember seeing the day and the day was all choppy. And I'm like, man, I probably, probably saved a good amount of money here just by thinking that. And, and I, it's sometimes I think we need these psychological things to um, maybe it's just not as easy for somebody to understand that when it's going your way to add or when it's not to step mm -hmm. back. So that was something that really triggered in my mind to understand that that psychologic, uh, that, that psychology when it comes to, to doing um, what you're saying. Um, it takes me to my next question is, you know, I've, I've spoken with a lot of people, you know, the William O'Neill methodology and things like that. Why is it that you think that some people are extremely successful with that type of methodology? And while others will say, I can't make money trading that. It's a good question. And I myself struggled, struggled with it for a long time when I started. I mean, I always, I always lost money with it. I mean, it was really frustrating and I just refined it over time, but there's, you know, that book for me, at least, I mean, I've, you could see the books, be, this is just a fraction of my library of technical books that I've read. And um, that book, there's no book that kind of rings true over time than that one, maybe along with reminiscences of a stock operator. But the, um, the unfortunate thing about that book is that it's so well written that it, it seems simple. And, and he, you know, William O'Neill boils it down to the, to the most important elements that you need, but the application is not simple. And your your the human element gets involved, and there's something that we develop over time. Like I, I you know, I've heard others call it chart eye. You know, like your eye gets used to looking at chart patterns, and you can decipher one that's shaped well, one that isn't. Just like a, a doctor can quickly look at an X-ray or whatever it is and say, oh yeah, this, this is a broken bone or whatever, and you're you have no idea what he's looking at. That's a skill that develops with time. And so William O'Neill was a master at that. And and now looking back at the charts, you know, it's, it's like every time I go back and study, I realize, oh, I was really looking at that the wrong way. And you, you refine your process, you get better. And most people don't have the risk management skills, the positioning skills, um, again, the psychology. And, and those are so important. Again, everyone's so focused on what to buy. What to buy is like saying, I want to build a car. I just want to worry about the engine and the gas pedal. If, if you can't turn corners, if you can't brake, if you can't, uh, you know, if your car can't withstand the uh, the intensity of driving at 200 miles an hour, it doesn't matter how fast you can go. You won't get to the finish line. So I, I think that's the the real difference is that the people who are successful with it have, um, have gone up and down, have, have lost money with it. But they just with any and, and it's any trading style is the same yeah. story, I think, you know, it's just this is one that resonates well with me. But for years I was day trading, swing trading. So, I mean, I've, I've done different styles. But I think just the key is that it's the experience, it's understanding the essence of what he's saying, Bill, and, and getting beyond just the numbers of what he's trying to put there in the chart patterns, understanding why is he why is he approaching the market like this? And that's a really big differentiating factor. At one point in the book, 
he, he talks about when he started out, he was he studied Jack Dreyfus, who had the best funds at the time. And he ordered uh, like the uh, the prospectus from the fund. And he realized Jack Dreyfus was a chart a chartist. He was buying breakouts. And that led him to buy, you know, these chart patterns with breakouts. But see, what he did was he didn't ask for the trade log of Jack Dreyfus and, and try and mimic exactly. He said, what's what's the logic underpinning, you know, what Jack Dreyfus is doing? He's looking for a consolidation. When the market breaks higher, we know that the trend's resuming and I'm getting long. So people have to get past what's a buy point, what's a buy signal. Why are you doing it? How does that work with the rest of your system? What size are you going to put on? You know, when when do you cry uncle and, and use your risk management? When do you sit there through volatility? That's the the difference between, you know, uh, in anything. You know, you could play, you know, little little league baseball and then there's an MLB player. You're both playing baseball. Why is one guy, you know, getting paid 20 million a year and one person's paying to play? I mean, it's that difference of refinement and keeping the whole system together that's important. Listen to that, everybody. I mean, this is why it's so important for you to find a style and a market and environments that resonate with you because it's not just as simple as learning a methodology. I, I put this tweet out a while ago. I said, there's a big difference between learning how to trade and learning how to become a trader. Yeah. And big. to me, it really comes down to, I think, initially finding those things that resonate with you, finding the markets that resonate with you. You know, you like stocks. I like futures and crypto. Everybody likes what they like. And I think it, you have to have this, I think, personality that fits with it. It's it's not just, hey, you learn this style, this will make you money. You have to really believe in it. And you have to, like I said, I think it really just comes down to resonating with you because then you'll then you'll give that full commitment to learning it and going through everything you discussed. And I'd also say, you know, just speaking with you, I, I can tell that, that you trade. I mean, there, there's a certain psychology when you do this and you do it with your full heart. And especially if you do it full time, like the full time trader, the full time investor who lives off of the market and the part time investor, drastically different. And, 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 you know, when you're living off of your performance, when it's, it's up to you to deal with good times, bad times, there's no one there to save you. Uh, you become driven in a different way. And I mean, it's not to say that you're, you're better than someone's doing part time. It's just that the pressures, and the way you're forced to adapt and understand yourself, there's no safety net. And so um, it really makes you approach it in a different way. And, and I find most everyone I know that's traded professionally has a very similar mindset. You all trade differently, but you have a very similar mindset about how you think about the markets and how you think about positioning. That, that's at least my experience. No, yeah, no. So well said. Now, Matt, we're going to go to the charts. Sure. And uh, so everybody here in just a second, we're going to pull up the charts. Like I said, if you're watching the spaces, you can hop over to YouTube. And, you know, if you follow me on the show or social media, you know that I post a lot of charts using TradingView. And on TradingView, I connect my TradeStation account to be able to trade futures right there on TradingView. That's pretty cool. I love that option for TradeStation customers. And to become a TradeStation, TradeStation customer like myself, you can get 50% off your brokerage fees. You can go to tradestation.com slash Anthony. Here we are with the charts right now with matt so actually i'm gonna might pull this up into a complete full screen so we could see it you and i are going to drop off here just for a second but the screen will Perfect. be full okay cool so i am reading the chat christy christy's asking if i'm reading the chat i see all these questions in there and yes everybody we are gonna start taking your questions in the youtube chat so uh don't worry we will get to them all and i saw a lot of these questions but first thing i want to do is matt we kind of talked about how you look at the bottoms and what you're doing to determine the market environment. Um, I, I think maybe if we could just kind of start there, just kind of sure. show us as the market was making lows and it started to change, 
maybe just pick NASDAQ or S&P or whichever, any one of the major indices, just to kind of gauge how you look at markets when they're making lows and maybe how you think the environment's shifting. So just the main tool I like to use for general uh, trend is in this bottom panel here. This is just really simply uh, the net 52-week highs lows for the NASDAQ. So if if there's you know 100 new highs made that day and there's 20 new lows, that means you're going to get a net number of, of 80 net highs. And so if you go back in time, and this is what I'm talking about environment, uh, you'll see that, let me just fix the scale here. You know, when, when the NASDAQ was really in its in its strong uptrend over the past couple of years, you constantly have, obviously, which makes sense, more stocks making highs than lows. I mean, only stands to reason. Uh, but as the market starts to top, like we said, topping is a process. And so really, the market started to lose a lot of steam, even into summertime. And so we had a little bump into year end. But you can see that right near the highs, actually, as, as we're making all-time highs, you already had more stocks breaking down, making new lows than new highs. So that's the environment that I'm talking about. And, and that's just so important. This is such a simple tool. And this really helps me guide my exposure. Um, I don't use this. So, you know, it's funny because I'll post this every day on Twitter and it's really a guide. And there's always some people will say like, oh, yeah, you know, but, you know, back here in uh, in August, you know, you had net lows. Now at the bottom this this you have to understand your tools. You know, it's, it's similar like a sniper rifle. You're not going to use that in, in close combat. You know, this this is a trend following tool. So you're looking for a new bull market to form and you want that confirmed with net highs. There's always going to be periods where you get a little bit of market weakness and after returns higher, that doesn't bother me, you know? So I mean, that's just part of your positioning. But what's important is, is not being off by a day or two, you know, just because you get net lows one day, you don't got to dump your entire portfolio. It's, you have to start to realize there's something might be wrong with the market. And that's what we saw here in late November. And it was even more apparent because all the leading stocks that I follow the high beta stocks, the stocks that are outperforming the market, you know, besides the mega cap NASDAQ and uh, sorry, the mega cap Apples and NVIDIA's, everything else was already breaking down. I mean, so internally it was really obvious. And when the majority of them were breaking down to me, that was just a really big, you know, warning signal. So fortunately for me, I, I was completely untouched by this entire market drop because I was either in cash or just more recently, I was buying some uh, energy and potash names, which we can discuss later. And I mean, there's no magic to it. I was really just following the internals. We had a lot of breaking down. Individual stock plays were not looking nice. And that combination just led me to have a lot of um, cash exposure. Real quick question. Do you ever short anything? You know, it's funny. My first year trading was 2008. It was the financial crisis. And uh, I, I mean, I had a good year, but you know, I, I almost <laughs> never shorted. You know, so I, I just, it doesn't call to me the same way. I do it sometimes like when we were in a really deep bear market, but I always cover too soon and I just, it just, you know, like you were saying before, know your personality, what works for you. For me, shorting is just kind of like keeping myself involved somewhat in the market. I'll never do it with a big position sizing. It's just kind of keep me interested, but it's not something I, I focus on. And you know, it's interesting for me. It's just uh, my biggest trades have been short. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There, there you go. It's crazy. Well, cause I think that's really also something that people that trade stocks versus futures have to you know understand i think that there you know, there's a lot of differences i think psychology wise we're very similar uh obviously when it comes to the margins and the leverage when it comes to futures as a leverage product right it, it is different and because obviously this futures radio show i want to talk about this a little bit is that when we go down the moves are so much quicker and and they're just so much sharper and going up i've always noticed this when it's going up you know, like one of my friends, Tom Canfield, I talked with him about this candy. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, it's amazing. Like we, we trade uh, psychologically. I think we have very, we have a lot of similarities and, you know, he's really helped me understand how to trade stocks. And 
you know, for me, I understand more from learning from him and how he, the environments he looks for because they're, we're going up and how, what he's looking for and how he takes advantage of that. And then for me on the future side, it's like, I, I like it when everyone's kind of screwed up. You know, I like it when it's really volatile because it gives me that, that in and out type of a mentality. And it, it really helps me understand also that when the stock market does start to get in this bull type mode and I goes, you know, guys like Kim and yourself that are, that are doing well and you're understanding this environment, that's harder for us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, it really is. So it also is another thing. I know we're talking about market environment today. I think that's something that I think a lot of stock people could look at when the futures markets start to get busy is to say, hey, that could be almost a trigger to help you understand. And when we get really wild, I, that's, I think that's almost makes your environment a little bit more difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, the stock market, a lot of people try and hold positions for longer term, but they, they try and get involved or they start try to initiate during these really volatile periods. And then just a a normal down day. I mean, like these bars look small here, but these are, are dramatic moves. It's enough that, you know, if your stock falls 10 or 15% on a reversal, you're out of your stock before it ever moves higher. So, you know, understanding volatility, if you're short term in futures and or trying to put a position on in, in a different type of stock, I mean, sometimes your strategy is not going to compute well. It's not, it's not going to be a well-rounded strategy. So you have to kind of really make sure that every, every element of that strategy works together to the same final goal. Yeah, and by oh, the yeah, way, yeah, I, I love following Tom on Twitter. I, I, he hasn't been tweeting as much as he used to, but everything he writes, I, I feel like it's he's speaking to me directly. <laughs> that, that's that experience. You can tell right away that Tom's uh, definitely someone who had his, has had his share of uh, market battles. Yeah, he's the best. He knows I love him. Uh, um, now, remember, everybody, if you're on the Twitter spaces right now, we are on the charts over in YouTube. So what are we going to look at now next, Matt? I know we talked a lot about really your process um, so far maybe take us through some either the names you're looking at or, sure. or just walk us through some of the indicators you have on your chart as well. So I always like to go, you know, I'm always technical based, but I always like to build the story in my mind. Even when I was day trading, like if I was bullish gold, I have a reason why. And that would every day drive me to try and be a buyer or a seller and back and forth. I just, my mind's always worked that way. And that's why big picture stuff has always appealed to me. And right now, I mean, I, I think there's just, you can see this is the, the NASDAQ has taken a really big beating. And if you look at oil, uh, the oil contract. I mean, oil's just been really strong here. I mean, we're, we're back at highs, and uh, this there was this drop here due to Omicron, and uh, President Biden released some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The market just bought it right back up. I mean, whenever whenever the government or some kind of entity tries to intervene and it fails, that's just a screaming buy because I mean, <laughs> they tried to stop it, they couldn't stop it. I mean, that, it's a really a strong move, and so that's what I mean by you want to be in leadership. So that really guides my exposure. And even though the market was breaking down that's the best time to see which stocks are leading. And so uh, I, I really keep my charts pretty clean overall. I don't have a lot of indicators. I have basically the net new uh, highs and lows in the bottom. I always keep the, uh, the NASDAQ or S&P above me to get a general market view. And I use this background coloring as something I created. It's, it's a, an, an adaptive relative strength tool that I use. It helps me to show if, if the product is showing relative strength or not. And you can see oil was really demonstrating relative strength from way back here. And so, it, you know, my current understanding of the markets is I'm really bullish oil because I think it's a very tight market. OPEC just spoke again today. They're not going to do any kind of uh, major increase in production. Uh, if you look at the American shale producers, which were really flooded the market with oil in the, in the past, all of their board of directors have all been changed because of, you know, in 2020 oil went negative and they were under so much pressure. The boards have changed their ESG focus because that's the only way you're going to get access to capital markets or, or, you know, reasonable access to the capital markets in the future. Uh, also, so they're focused on returning cash to shareholders. So they're not just you know going to go out there and just 
produce oil like they have in the past. So oil, the supplies are very tight. And uh, in the States, I mean, I can't speak to the States, but in Canada, we're having kind of like a, a mini, uh, I guess, a revolution going on here with all the truckers really demanding that all the mandates stop. You know, the UK, the mandates came off for COVID. I think if the world just finally says, look, we're going to live with COVID the way it is and the mandates come off, you're going to get this surge in demand for oil. The supply won't be there and you're going to see oil go I mean, much higher is, is my general viewpoint. So that's how I kind of build the story in my mind. And that's why I've been working with stocks such as Devon Energy. We can see here, this has been a very strong stock. Again, my relative strength has been showing that this entire time pretty much. And so when the market started to sell off in this area here, we pulled back to the 50-day averages. We came back through and I could see the strength in the stock. Uh, I, I started to get really a position long pretty aggressively in the 44 area. And I've still been adding recently. And so this has really been, been pushing higher. Um, a similar story with uh, Diamondback Energy. Really nice basing structure. If you go, if we were, were to go to a weekly chart, you can see it's it's really um, nice how the volatility is, is, has been controlled during the basing process. But really, is that standout relative strength versus the market and the fundamentals and and the potential for higher oil prices. Bringing that whole story together is really gets me excited. You know, another time where I want to talk about futures a little bit. Obviously, futures radio show, but you're looking at the price of oil based off of the futures price. Right. And to me, there's no better place to look at it. So I know a lot of people out there that are trading these oil stocks that are following Matt. I mean, symbol CL, uh, it to me is something you have to look at if you want to get an accurate price on oil. And, you know, you can look at the months out and stuff like that. When you're looking at oil, are you looking at it from a technical basis as well as you are with the names? Or do you just put a line chart up kind of like how you did for the S&P uh, for oil? I like to look at it technically based. I'll go back in time to see where there's going to be some points of resistance. Uh, also, like you mentioned, I, I, it's always great. You know, it's very rare. When does a commodity bull market happen? That's not in backwardation. So typically, you know, the current the current contract expiring is going to be priced higher than the forward contracts. That's just typical of any bull market. So I always like to see that as well. And you know, I had quite a bit of experience when I before I started trading pro and, and I was a teenager. I mean, what's better than having, you know, all the leverage of a futures contract, right? I mean, all I had was my McDonald's savings when I started trading uh, by working part-time. So to leverage that through the futures market was was the way to go. So, uh, and back in, you know, 05, 06, 07, there was all the grains, soybeans, wheat, were, were hot, copper, oil, gold. So I was really trading all the actual futures contracts. And so I kind of have a good understanding of it on that basis. And um, even, even the next, you know, stocks we'll look at, which is, I think, the fertilizer stocks that's driven by you want to keep an eye on soybean prices wheat prices corn prices and uh, it's it's really made you know some it's it's unfortunate that more stock traders don't follow futures even at least somewhat because i mean it's the global supply chain that you know can lead to some very really important dramatic moves so i think i always keep an eye on it even if it's not always my focus i mean it's just so important and it's amazing to me how many people i know that that don't know that i mean that the mm -hmm. futures market is where that's where price discovery is happening for the price of these commodities. And so if you're trading these stocks based on oil or any sort of commodity, futures are obviously the best place. Um, I know a lot of people are asking, uh, I'm seeing some questions here and there about what are the names that are pointing out to you for the, for the leadership right now? I know you've been talking about oil to the upside. Yeah. Was, is there anything else that you're looking at to, to help you really determine the leadership of this market? So I think leadership is really defined by two things. One is it's price strength. So the leader absolutely has to be advancing before the market or stronger than the market. That's the number one definition. Two, there has to be a fundamental basis. If you're a $3 stock that's just doubling because of some short-term momentum, you're not going to be 
uh, a big price leader. You, you want to be of a, a decent market cap, and there has to be a good fundamental story that will attract institutions to bring money, deploy it there, and drive it for a, a longer-term move. I think that's that's really critical. Those are the two real factors I watch. And uh, you know, I, I, the tech stocks have been so great to everyone for a couple of years. And unfortunately, technically, they're so beaten. Not that they can't have a, you know a reflex rally up, but they're definitely not leaders. That takes time. Once there's that kind of a break, the only places I see really good strength right now, and it's not great for the broader economy or for maybe most people who don't like those sectors, is really energy. And I really like the potash situation. There was actually really big news yesterday that came out of Russia. People, I mean, and this is important for every, for even general life, is you know, fertilizer prices are at the I think higher than they were in 08, which was their prior peak. That affects your food prices. That that affects a lot of a lot of things in, in the in the economy, and uh, fertilizer is really important in the food uh, chain. And ammonium nitrates is a big component of fertilizer. And Russia produces two thirds of the world's supply. And yesterday they came out saying for the next two months we're not going to export any ammonium nitrate because there's so much demand. You know, internally we're going to keep it for, for domestic use. That's like quite a shock. That's why I think Mosaic here had such a big up move yesterday. And similar to Devon. You know, as the market really came lower here over the past, you know, few weeks, Mosaic's actually entered into a pretty nice uptrend. And uh, this is a general, you know, this chart pattern in general here is a cup with handle pattern. So you have the great story. I mean, food prices are are, are really strong. If you look at the grains, uh, fertilizer prices are hitting records. These companies are are making phenomenal earnings, and they're leading the market. You're back at highs. You have good price and volume action. Another uh, stock in the same group is uh, CF Industries. You can see here as the markets, you know, rolled over and come down. I mean, the market is lower now than it was in October and uh, September, and CF is significantly higher. Again, you have really big price uh, uh, and volume action on the upside. To me, I think these are the leaders of this current market. And for most people who haven't been trading a long time, to me, it's funny. I was talking with a friend of mine that I used to trade with at the bank. We were on the same trading desk together, and we were saying, "Hey, look, it's 2006, 2007, all over again. All, all the same stocks that were." were the big performers back then, CF, Mosaic. Um, now there's a, there's a Canadian giant that used to be Potash. They, they're Nutrien, they merged. They're all coming back to the leaders again. So it's like the cycles come full circle. But um, these stocks usually aren't sexy, but at the right time, if there's supply constraints, it, they can become, they can have really dramatic moves. So when you find a sector like this, that's a leader, are you basically just only focused on these names right now? Because to me, it, it sounds as though you just like to trade and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, you like a leadership sector, you like where the leaders are, because it goes back to kind of what you were saying earlier, I'm getting confirmation that these are doing good, so I should keep doing good in these names. Yeah, absolutely. And okay. uh, it's nice sometimes, you know, because, you know, I like to be concentrated. So if there's only a couple of sectors, your portfolio volatility is going to go up because you're you end up being very heavily invested. It's just the nature of, I guess, as a, a professional investor, yeah, I, I like being fully invested if, if I can be. Uh, but then after something goes wrong in oil or something goes wrong in the potash sector, it's a big part of your portfolio. When it's a, a healthier market, let's say, where there's there's more sectors participating, you know, you could have a big position in uh, internet technology. You could have a big position in a healthcare name. You could have a big position in a, uh, I don't know, let's say some kind of a retail chain. And so you get a little bit of at least in industry diversification. But in times like these, if these are the only leaders, I'm not going to diversify for the for the sake of diversifying. I mean, I'll only do so if I see like equal opportunity elsewhere. So I'll just keep trying to add and build my position as safely as I can at different uh, different points. Couple questions: How many names would you be in at one time, and how long is your average hold time? 
So it's funny, the names question is an interesting thing. There's my, one of my closest friends, he's also a professional trader. And, you know, we would for years be trading the same stocks like next to each other. And, and I would always have five, seven names, eight names, and he would have 25 or 30. And I say, Harry, how do you manage 30 names? He's like, no, that's the way you got to do it. You know, it's just the way he liked it. He was comfortable. <laughs> Once I get past seven, eight, nine names, I can, I almost can't keep track of what's going on. I like to stare at price action and, and like read every, every movement all day long. You know, every time the house of stock reacting, is there something funny? What was that big trade that happened or that quick move? And I, I just to be aware of what's happening. So I feel comfortable, unlike I think most people and what's, what's the natural reactions, I feel comfortable having only five or six, seven names. Beyond that, I get uncomfortable. So whereas most people like having more names to feel like they're diversified, for me, it's the opposite. I want to have concentrated, I mean, within reason, obviously, you don't want to have everything in one stock all at once. Uh, but I, I feel like I can I can adapt quicker to market changes that way. And for holding periods, it really depends. I used to be, again, I used to be a day or swing trader, but with the current strategy as I'm applying it, and that's my, my focus now for, for a few years, several years, um, I'm looking, it doesn't always work out that way, but I'm looking to hold for at least several weeks to months. You know, uh, I don't usually go past that, you know, nine months or a year. It's just my, my nature, but at least weeks to months to get a good, you know, solid, solid trend that will, will, uh, return some sizable returns. How do you work stops and targets? Do you work stops? I, so I kind of, uh, do something that's a little bit different is, is I, I like to have like a dollar stop. So I, I predetermine you know, what percentage of my account I'll want to, you know, lose on a trade. Then after just, instead of doing percentages, I'll, I'll figure out a dollar amount so I can work with it day to day. And and that really, I, I developed that because at one point, a, a few years back, I'd gone through like a, a drawdown and I was just, I was getting nervous to put a trade on. You, you know, you've been there, Anthony. It's like, it's like, you, you can't do anything right, you know? And then you just get frustrated. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm just going to, because when I started trading at, at the bank, at a, you know, I was the youngest guy and I was sitting next to the oldest guy and he was a really nice guy, Franco. And he told me, Matt, no matter what's happening, I don't care if you're trading 100 shares, 10 shares, never stop trading. He's like, if you stop trading, you're going to lose your edge and you won't be able to trade anymore. He's like, never stop. And so I, I took that. I always took that to heart. And so I, I got to the point where I said, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of gun shy here. I don't really want to get in there. But you know what? I'm OK losing X number of dollars. And I said, I'll put on a position. If I'm down that, that amount of money, I'm going to get out. And it just it works so well to calm my psychology it became like a, a staple of my trading approach. So I always begin with a dollar stop. And as I add to my positions, I personally keep that dollar stop the same. I'm adding on strength. So even though my position gets can get really big as a percentage of my account, I'm still only going to lose that same same amount for, for my account. So it's just it's given me a lot of comfort on uh, how to trade that way. I want to stay on that just for a second because, first of all, I want to know how you would determine the – the price area versus the dollar amount. For example, let's just say that you bought something that was holding above your moving averages mm -hmm. and you say, I'm going to risk $5,000 on this trade. Okay. Well, what happens if it starts breaking down on all of your stuff? Is it the dollar amounts getting you out before price does? Uh, or does price then intervene and say, this is no longer working. I'm going to take my loss. So the dollar amount, the dollar loss is always my worst case situation. So I, I, I don't want to lose more than that amount of money. It's, 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 I want to move on to the next idea. If let's say I put on a position, like you said, and the support is, I don't know, $30 and we break that with volume and I'm only down, let's say in your example, $3,000 instead of the five, I'll exit before. I mean, I'll, I'll always exit earlier if I feel like that the, the trade has changed. I just, I won't over, I won't step beyond my $5,000 loss just because 
the price, you know, stock, the stock chart will only break down $5,000 lower from here. You know, it's, it's like risk management comes first in that case. Got it. So when you get into the trade, you are saying to yourself, this is how much I'm going to risk on this trade. Right. And that is determined not how far away the market can get away from where you potentially be wrong. I, I guess what I'm trying to come to figure out is let's just say that you have something that you really like and it's holding those moving averages that we were looking at in the chart. Right. It, it, at that point, you're saying you're going to, you're going to let that work until maybe it starts to prove to me it's no longer working with the price action, but if it blows through an area, that area, that's the amount I'm risking. Yeah, exactly. You're not exactly. basing it on, okay. Yeah, um, I know a lot of people will say like, you know, I, I, I'll, my, my exit has to be the low of this bar. And I mean, in general, when I'm putting on the position, I want to keep in mind volatility. Like a, if I only want to withstand, let's say a $5,000 position, I can't put on, a, you, can't, you can't put on a $50 million position and expect to, to sit through normal volatil you know, volatility. So you have to factor that in, but that's kind of pre-built into my position sizing so that you know my dollar stop is a reasonable reasonable amount of of uh, percentage move on my my position when I buy it. So you know you have to be realistic as well. But it's just it's just simpler for me. Even if sometimes you know it'll get stopped out in, in sideways action. But you know it, it's a it's a, a, an amount of money I'm willing to lose that doesn't you know mess up my psychology. I'll get back in if if it's just a, a small shake and then we break. Like I mean like look here this low broke this prior low here in January fourteenth. Then it's you know it took off and it broke the downtrend line. It took off. So so you got so if I would have got stopped out earlier or right at the low, okay, unfortunate. If I buy this back on the on the trend line break, if let's say that's the trigger, but I think that CF can go to let's say my my aim is for a move to hundred or hundred twenty five dollars. Well, I had a two dollar loss, but if if my goal is sixty dollars, I mean, there's enough asymmetry there. There's enough like huge exactly. upside to offset for a few downside losses, and but that. Again, that goes back to your overall strategy and approach. When I was day trading, it was different. You know, right now I, I really demand asymmetry because I'm I'm a trend trader. So I want big gains and my losses are small. When I was day trading, my wins and losses were always about the same size, but I had a high win percentage. So, you know, people go around and saying, "I this is the, this is the way you have to." There's no way you have to trade. Your strategy's got to make sense. Your your strategy's got to be cohesive, and it's all got to work together. Because I mean, I myself have have made a living trading different strategies along the way. So, I mean, it's just, it's just important that it all works together. I agree. And, you know, for me, I go into every single position knowing how much I'm going to risk, but mm -hmm. I determine my position size based upon the price that I know the trade doesn't no longer work for me. I think this is also a big difference between when you're looking at trading stocks versus futures, especially like right now I'm in the Z mini NASDAQ. I mean, this thing, it's like, you know, if, if my dollar amount, it has to be, I have to know that price to have to work a hard stop because I could blink and this thing could be just ripping my face off. Right. So I have to <laughs> kind of trail them and know exactly where it is. And I think with some of the, the, the way that you're going about it is it makes sense to me because I think that when you put that risk per trade out there beforehand, you're already starting to heal. You look mm -hmm. at it like I've lost 5,000 bucks. I'm healing already. You've already somewhat accepted that loss. I think that to me is one of the most important things you have to do before you get into the trade. And, you know, I, I will all go out there and we'll probably, you know, <laughs> I'd love to say I'm perfect and say that it always is that case, but I, I really will be really disciplined in my stops and those risk areas. Um, because to me, I've already healed from that price, from that, from that risk amount.
And that allows me to then focus more on the market. When people say focus more on the market, that's something that I think is important is to know that number before you get in. We've only got a little bit of time left. So there's a couple of things um, I want to get to quickly and I want to get to some of these questions. One is as they start to go your way, are you scaling out of these? Um, Angela is asking, Angela, you're reading my mind. That's the question I was going to ask him. Is it all in at once also, or are you scaling in, scaling out? So I'll scale in, but to get out, I'm typically uh, getting out all at once. I mean, that's usually the way I like to approach it. I mean, it depends the overall portfolio. Let's say I'm running really hot. Let's say I, I got like, let's say in 2020, you're invested 150 or 170% of your portfolio. And you say, oh, the market's getting extended. I'd like to take a look, just, I'd like to, to dampen the next big, you know, big correction. I'll look around, I'll look at maybe the names that are a little bit weaker that haven't participated as strongly and say, look, I'll take maybe half of this one off or, or this position altogether off because it's, it's weaker. That's kind of the portfolio management side of things. But my aim, the real aim of what I'm trying to do is to find a big leader that's going to double or triple, have a big percentage of my account in there and ride it for the whole move. So the only, the problem I've seen about kind of taking it off a little bit at a time is that it shifts your mindset from trying to hold on to this leader to where you're you're piecing it off. And the, and the more you piece it off, the easier it is to take off more. And then after, you know, so you true. only made a 50% return when your aim was for 250%. So the 250% does come, but you're only left with 10% of your position. So it's kind of because of my stated end goal, that's kind of what um, impacts how I approach the entire position sizing and selling process. I it's, you know, hearing you say that is something I go, I go through regularly. I've been doing this for right. a long time. It's like, I'm, I'm a scaler. Okay. So, mm -hmm. uh, I, my goal is always to get out all at once at the area I want to get out in. Once again, I think it's a little different in your time frame versus mine, but the point you made about the scaling, it's like, it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, I sell them early, they blow through, they go up. I can't add to the position now. Now, instead of having a bigger winner, uh, people will say, well, you took some risk off. Yeah, but I, you know, I, the, once I start to scale, I don't care who you are that kind of feeling feels good to start taking that profit. Next thing you know, you're overscaling. Yeah. It is a balance. It's not something that's really easy to do. And, and I think for me as a futures trader, it also is going to depend on the product sometimes. Like a mm -hmm. NASDAQ, I have to scale because mm -hmm. these prices, I have no idea. But with S&P, I don't scale as much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with, with a slower mover, I think you could be, you don't have to be as big of a hurry to scale versus something that's like, you know, the NASDAQ. <laughs> You know, um, but also at the same time, you know, everyone, because that's, again, the psychology. People are looking at it, I guess, from a state of fear that they're going to lose their profit. But when you're doing this long enough, I'm sure you've been there, Anthony, where, I mean, I was trading stocks and, and you took this small profit and you had, a, you had a good feeling this was going to be a big winner. But you took your small profit, you stepped aside and you look back after six months to say, if I would have just kept my original position, I'd be retired <laughs> right now. One time. You know? mean, and, and, and that that one time that frustrates you. When you see that 10 times, you say, I got to sit back and kind of reassess what my strategy is here. And that's kind of oh, the way I got to this. this, this I can't uh, even go into what I've done in Ethereum. <laughs> it's just sometimes I just, I just it's, it's, I'm surprised. At the life of a trader. Like it's, it. it's unbelievable, right? Um, yeah. No, and I, like I said, there's a little more, a couple more questions here, but I think that this one's, um, we're going to take two more before, before I let you go. Um, one of them is from, uh, Om, uh, Parakash. He's asking, I butchered your name. I'm sorry, man. P um, what good books to read? You talked about all these books you have behind you. Right. And what, what are your, some of your favorite books that you think traders should read? You know, I've read, I think if, if you wrote a book, especially technical analysis in the past 30 or 40 years, whoever you are, I purchased your book. So I, I've read a lot of them, but the problem is, is almost if you read too many books, 
you don't know which way to go anymore. So um, I think you have to find a strategy that works for you and then have to read a lot of books to reinforce your, your thought process. So with the, the way I approach the markets, the main book that I would always recommend is How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill. Actually, everything written by William O'Neill. He's, he's a phenomenal, a legendary investor. Uh, there's reminiscences of a stock operator, again, written 1927. But if you trade long enough and the longer you trade, the more that book will speak to you. It's, it's, I, every time I'm in a drawdown, I reread that book. It's phenomenal. Um, I like the book Winning on Wall Street by Marty Zweig. Uh, he talks about monetary policy, the Federal Reserve, and it's it's got some really good eye-opening stuff in there. Um, I gotta think what else? Uh, I'm trying to think of the real, the, the best books to read. Those are, those are really some of my favorites. Um, there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, uh, Mark Minervini Mark, Mark has some good books. Um, I have to take, take a look at my, my case here. <laughs> I know you got so many behind you. Uh, maybe Pitbull, maybe what Pitbull we'll ask you to do book, is yeah. put them in the comments later in YouTube. If sure. you guys are listening to this, drop some of the books if there's anything you didn't mention. And, and the last question for today, you know, when you go to your website, I love this about um, you and what you, what you put out there. You said you have a course that teaches you how to think and act like a pro. Not, you're not telling anyone what to think. And after hearing you talk right. today, it really does confirm that with me. You know, it's the first time you and I have actually spoken. So right. we've been following each other for years. A couple of uh, just a couple of Italians uh, uh, traders <laughs> out there, but no. And, and I, I think this is such an important point. I want to leave on this note because I think that this is it ties into a lot of what we discussed today. Uh, learning how to think as a trader. It's why I asked you that question about William O'Neill. I said, why can some people make money trading that and other people can't? You know, there's a reason for that because yeah. he's teaching you how to think. I think a lot of people are looking at that, having him tell them what to think. And there right. is a major difference. Talk about that. I think that's a hundred percent true. And, 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 you know, that's one thing when you start working on a trading desk, you'll notice no trader ever asks another trader, what are you buying right now? Or what's, what, 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 what should I buy? I mean, it's almost like you don't want to bring yourself to be that guy. Like, shouldn't you know what you're doing kind of thing? So it's, you're always going to discuss process, psychology, you know, what, what did I kind of do wrong here? And so, I mean, after I had a good run in, in the championship, you know, a lot of people asked me to put together about my process. And I thought about it, I said, like, I'll only do it, but I, it doesn't, I don't want it to be another thing like buy here, sell there. It has to really be, I want to be kind of next to you like I was on the trading desk with the people who kind of showed me some tips and tricks. And really, that's why, you know, how to think and act like a pro. The whole point is after the course, I explain why I do everything, how I do it. So you can take it and you can adjust with it. It's not... When this indicator gets oversold by, that's not the way I approach the markets, as you can tell from the talk today. So it's all about getting into the mindset of a professional investor, whether even if you're a part-time investor, it doesn't matter. You still want to have that same skill set. And that's really what I tried to bring that's that's different. And I, I break down each aspect of the process, why I do it that way, and how you can probably adapt it for yourself in your own situation. So well said. So we'll put everybody... Um... Well, actually, we'll drop a link in here if we could later, Matt. Put it a link in the comments here on YouTube sure. and maybe a link um, from the Twitter spaces for people to go and check that out. What Matt is doing is one of the most important things for traders. If you can learn how to think, then your ceiling's unlimited. If you're told what to think, you're limited to what someone told you how to think. And to me, that is that is just goes back to even that tweet I put out. There's put out there's a big difference between learning how to trade and learning how to be a trader. Highly recommend you go and check this course out by Matt. Matt, you're just you're just a good you're just a good dude, man. I got to tell you what it was. I learned a lot from you. You know, it's I always love speaking uh, to traders that are trading differently than me, different products, and how you open my eyes today to how you approach the market. 
taught me a lot on, on how you think and how I should uh, uh, look at maybe trading some of the stocks that I do. Because I don't just trade futures, but I do, I do trade some stocks. And like I said, I learned a ton from you today. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and dealing with the spaces and the YouTube. <laughs> we had a lot going on here, everybody. It's the first time. Like I said, I'm not sure anyone else has done it, man. We did it. We, we, <laughs> we got through it. Trailblazers. <laughs> so, Matt, tell everybody where they could find you quickly on Twitter. Um, and that's it. Perfect. Yeah. Tr uh, Twitter, my uh, name is at trader underscore M Caruso. My website is carusoinsights.com. And Anthony, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to your shows. It's a pleasure to finally be on. It's just always great content. And uh, anytime I'd love to come back. It's always great to talk to a fellow, uh, fellow pro. <laughs> yeah, man. I, like I said, thank you so much. Learned a ton from you today. I really appreciate your time and I'm definitely looking forward to having you back on, on the show. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in today on the Twitter spaces. My first one that I'm hosting, it will be recorded. It should be already be recorded. It should say it's recording on there. It'll also be available on iTunes. We are here on YouTube for everyone joining us here on YouTube. And later it'll be on iTunes and everything else, everywhere else where my podcast is available. That's it for this uh, live stream this week. Remember, everybody, every Wednesday at 12 Eastern, I will be live for the Futures Radio Show podcast. Have a great week, everybody. See ya. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Never miss an episode. Go to anthonycrudelli.com and get on our email list for show notifications and for free content that is exclusively for subscribers. Also on anthonycrudelli.com, you will find tons of videos and education on trading futures, options, and crypto. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Opinions expressed are solely my own and my guests, and they do not express the views or opinions of my sponsors. Futures Radio Show is produced by Crudelli Productions.